load the plates and lift the weights And we are mates and weights are great And as of late we pontificate about the weights And make a podcast! Sumo is cheating! This is Weekly Weights with Alex and Will Welcome to Weekly Weights, this is episode 121 I think. No, 122. 122. And we're here with a longtime listener who we've actually got as a guest today. And he's bloody stoked, I'll tell you that. I've His never had so many requests by somebody to come on the podcast. And it doesn't matter what. Sometimes he'll just ask to come on to tell us about his day. And now that he's now that he's a coach of a prominent company, which we'll get to in a second, he's actually been messaging us from that company's Instagram page saying, get Tom Clark on. <laughs> yeah, and signing it with the other coaches' yeah. names. But you can tell from the grammatical errors that it's him. So, yep, I spoiled it. It's Tom Clark. We're going to talk to him about uh, going up weight classes today. So, Tom, did you want to just intro yourself first for all the listeners? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Will. Um, I'm Tom Clark. I'm a currently Brisbane-based sports nutritionist and PT. Um, and I do a lot of work with like powerlifters and athletes as well as some body composition people talking about ways they can maximize their nutrition and training really um, a lot of it in an online and like consulting type capacity. Cool. Um, We got TC on to talk about something that he both has experience in personally and has experiencing, has experience in coaching people through flex success. Um, And that's this idea of moving up a weight class in powerlifting or just coaching for weight gain generally. And so we'll start with like the most broad-based question we can, which is from a developmental perspective, why should powerlifters move up weight classes or at the very least be thinking about periods of weight gain? Yeah, I think like powerlifting in many ways is a super like simple sport and such a large part of your potential and how well you can do as a powerlifter is defined by how much muscle you can potentially carry. And spending extended amounts of time in a surplus um, whether it's in the context of going up a weight class or simply doing some recomp is a really really useful way to improve a lot i think the other kicker which people talk about when they go up a weight class is all of a sudden because they spend a long time in a surplus their training goes really well they recover really well they get this momentum and often find themselves hitting some really good pbs um, and making some marked improvements in a really short amount of time compared to when they were artificially trying to stay below or at a certain weight beforehand. Yeah. Something that I, um, I think about as well is a lot of people get into powerlifting. Like as in, if you look at the sort of arc of a lot of people's training career, they start training generally and they discover that they quite like it and they start investing themselves a little bit more and right on that sort of cusp where they start saying, I'm going to invest a lot more of my time and effort in training, they get into powerlifting and it kind of doesn't make sense if you're at that stage in your training career to be anchored to a weight class, because if you're really sort of just entering that period where you're taking training very seriously, it stands to reason that you probably haven't maxed out your muscular potential, you know? Um, but yet a lot of people do go into powerlifting and their expectations of the weight class that they're going to compete in is fixed from the get-go. And it's like exactly what I said, man, if you're two years into your training career, chances are you're not as big as you will be in year 10. So you don't want to curtail that just because your expectations are anchored to where you begin. Yeah. And I think on that too, like if you, like it depends on how important powerlifting actually is to you, but you could definitely make an argument that a powerlifter should be slowly gaining weight 
almost all the time for the rest of their powerlifting career if that's the thing which is actually the most important to them, um, which a lot of people don't do. So they sort of put this caveat of, oh, like, I want to be a powerlifter in this weight class. And I think that's fine, provided that's a decision people are doing, like, deliberately and willfully and acknowledging that, hey, it's going to limit the amount of potential I can, like, improve on and execute with. Because I know, like, I know, Alex, you spent a bit of time doing a few pretty gnarly weight cuts and found you felt a bit like you were treading water with your comp results, didn't you? Yeah, so I sort of started training for powerlifting around 80 kilos and then um, decided I would compete in the 74 class, even though it was further away from where I was than the 83 kilo class. Completely stupid, but stubbornly I stayed there for way too long and like I made okay progress at the start just because I was new enough. But when it got to the point where I was actually genuinely too big for the class and cutting down made me worse and made me weaker in those last sort of five, six weeks of every prep that I did. So yeah, like it got to the point where I, I put 10 kilos on my total only in my like first year of competing. Um, and then when, as soon as I went up, I put like 60 kilos on in six months. So it was like, it was completely ridiculous. So yeah. I think when, when we start talking about making changes to body weight and body composition, um, people have like, you know, a reasonable degree of ambivalence oftentimes, you know, when you say gaining weight, a lot of people think like, oh, but I want to be lean. When you say like, we're going to cut a lot of people think oh, I'm trading off on training results. So um, TC in your experience, what are the costs and benefits associated with both gaining and losing weight? Yeah, I think, I think a part of that at least is having people understand like as trainees, what things really matter to them. Um, because like, if it really is super important to you emotionally that you weigh a certain number, like that is your decision and you can do that, but it's important you engage with that acknowledging, Hey, we're like limiting our palating performance. Um, like, I think obviously the pros of gaining weight and sort of building a bit more lean tissue over time are pretty obvious in that you'll be able to produce, you've got better force producing architecture, but I think there are other benefits too, just along the lines of your recovery gets a lot better. You're more likely to fuel your training really well if you're eating more calories um, to like be super simplistic about it. But, and you'll also see as you reach the top of that weight class and as you get more muscly, there are more and more cons with trying to artificially keep yourself down there. Um, and often what people note with this, particularly people who do like extended cuts into competition every time they compete is if they compete like two or three times a year, they'll find they spend a lot of time dieting and their training numbers further away from competition will often like still improve at least like to a degree. And then it's really when they're getting closer and closer to comp and they're doing some funky things with weight cutting um, and they're in quite a harsh deficit for a few weeks, they find their competition performance, sort of, which is sort of the point really, if you're a competitive powerlifter, isn't actually getting much better. Um, I think another thing people often need to think about is that it's, yeah, so like you're not necessarily losing out in that context. Like you're not making your training cancel for nothing, but you see that sort of like big compensatory improvement in performance when you actually fuel yourself and you're actually ticking those boxes and spending a bit more time in a surplus. And so then as a coach, 
is that the type of indication that you start to use or the evidence you start to use to support maybe having the discussion with an athlete that, hey, you know, maybe it's time to start thinking about going up? Yeah, I think often for a lot of people, as much as you like can give them the, hey, like it's probably time to go up now, at least some of that has to come from themselves and be their own decision. Um, I think like it's really underrated letting people make at least some of their mistakes in a controlled environment. And I, I know, I don't know what you, Alex, but I know like, will you have like a form of post comp reflection, which may be slightly plagiarized. Um, but I think that's a really good question to ask yourself in that post comp period when you sit down like a couple of days a week later and reflect, how did I go? What are the things which could have made my performance a lot better on the day and to see what degree your nutrition is aligned with your training goals. Something that um, that you kind of touched on tangentially, but I definitely see, and again, I'd be curious to hear your experiences around this, is there is like an affective component um, to what we're doing with with our body weight and our calories. So like at the extremes, if you lose weight and you're losing weight for a long time, you tend to turn into a bit of a grumpy shit and you know, you're a little bit more tired and your training performance is worse and you don't tend to enjoy it as much. Is that what happened to you? That's certainly not happening to me. I'm just, I'm grumpy because I'm reflective. Um, but when, when you go through those periods of gaining weight, both because you see momentum and, and just improvement in what you do and because you're just a bit better fueled and better energized and you don't have those negative mood effects of restricting intake, you tend to enjoy training a little bit more. And so something that you, I also, I also sort of observe with those people who are really trying to hold themselves back into a weight class for longer than perhaps they ought is that they tend to be a little bit like more stressed about training than they ought to be, or they tend to enjoy it just a little bit less than they would if they gave themselves the freedom to just let themselves pursue improvement without having that, that anchor there. Yeah. Well, I, and I think like on the flip side of that, when you are cutting weight, it is really important to make sure you're framing your training in a way where you can still derive some kind of satisfaction and enjoyment from it. Um, even though the numbers aren't necessarily like super exciting. Um, I know like when I went up from like when I went up a weight class because of the way you structured my program, Will, it was like, I did, I did sort of this bulk amount of work for like five, four or five months, um, which was all like hard and enjoyable and productive. And then there was a stage of two or three months where it felt like every single week I hit a personal best of some description. And I think for a lot of people, the excitement of that when you're going up a weight class is just awesome. It's unreal. It's really rewarding. You get like heaps of instant gratification and you feel really good about it. But then you have to ask the question on the other side, when you're losing weight, how can you frame your training? Uh, considering that say a PB at a specific body weight, talking about like PBs when you're cutting, um, and finding other variables you can manipulate. So you're still able to look at your training and feel like you're at least getting some wins in there and it's productive because no one like people definitely enjoy getting better more than they enjoy, like feeling frustrated that they're treading water or getting worse potentially. So like there's a bit of a subtext to what you're saying that I like, I personally like to walk back, but again, you know, you're welcome to contradict me. Um, which is that like the presumption is that you may not improve when you're losing weight and definitely chronically losing weight and chronically suppressing your body weight might slow you down. But I do think that it's possible for lifters to get stronger 
you know, depending on circumstances, substantially stronger in those periods of weight loss. And I think another important discussion worth having with people who are about to engage in a period of weight loss, and particularly one where it's like reasonably modest or reasonably short term is around expectations. Because I do have some lifters who come to me with the expectation that like, oh, I want to lose five kilos. Like I'm 85 kilos now. I want to cut to 80. And they expect they're going to be like 10% weaker when they get to 80 kilos, which is just not the case. They could very well continue to make improvements. And if they have positive expectancy biases, when they walk into training, they might just push a bit harder and actually do better as a result. So I think also having some faith that your training interventions and your nutrition interventions are sufficiently facilitative for you to get better and that it is still within you to get better is important, Alex. I've got a quick point on that. I think a lot of people expect that they will see a performance decrease during a cut and it gives them almost like an excuse to not train as hard. It gives them this like kind of mental sort of thing that like tells them that it's okay if Mm. they get weaker. When I think if you are able to frame it, like you said, Will, like if you are able to, to tell them, you know, this is the actual, this is actually realistic that you could maintain or even gain strength during this phase. They're actually going to buy into their training a little bit more and actually give it more effort. Yeah. And I agree with you. And I think that comes down to like appropriately counseling people and the level of degree at which you're pushing that outcome. Um, and like I know it's trendy at the moment. Like I see a few people give really long protracted weight cuts to individuals where they may spend like, they may spend five or six months and lose five kilos, but the virtue of that like tactic, so to speak, is that they may spend four days a week where they're effectively at maintenance. And then they have three days where they're at some level of deficit and they're just losing that weight over a really long amount of time. And I think in context like that, it's really reasonable to still expect yourself to get stronger and for things to get better. But the leaner you get, and the more extreme of a weight cut we're talking, both in terms of total magnitude and like speed, the more likely it is you can need to counsel someone of, hey, like this is probably not going to go quite as well. So let's flip it because we're talking about losing weight right now. Let's flip it and talk about gaining weight. Um, as a coach, how do you start framing those discussions with people? You said it's nice when they kind of come to you having resolved that they want to do that a bit themselves. Um, where do you take it from there? Yeah, I think often, and again, like on a case-to-case basis, it depends on the level of nutritional literacy people already have. Um, so if you're an individual who's like already fairly literate, tracks their calories, tracks their macros, it just becomes a case of you turning that dial and going, okay, like it's really common for people to dial down on their like tracking and their food management behaviors when they're trying to lose weight but encouraging a really high level of consistency when they're gaining weight is also really useful, both because like, obviously it helps them be a bit more precise. It helps them stay in that sort of mild slight surplus for an extended period of time, but also because I think it decouples like tracking and watching your nutrition as a behavior people associate with weight loss. Um, and instead all people think about is like, what well, obviously it's a, you can't see the video of me, but I'm like turning the dial left or right. So you turn your calories up, you turn your calories down. Um, so I think for a lot of people, I talk about like, if this is what you currently put in, we want you to put in like marginally more. And the outcome we're really chasing from that is to see this, your scale weight drift upwards realistically, like at the slowest rate we can provided there's no other exceptional circumstances. Um, 
um, just because my thinking there is very much if being in a surplus is really good and you're not necessarily gaining a lot more by being in a really aggressive surplus, you're better off spending 10, 12 months going up that weight class and just banking heaps of productive training, gaining comparatively more lean muscle and less fat, which means you need to spend less time in a deficit down the line if you want to ameliorate that. You're going to get a lot more out of it if you can just consistently put in that small stimulus to grow just a little bit over a really long time. So there's a few really common sources of ambivalence in gaining weight. You know, there's social pressures. So people think they're going to look worse. There's like uncertainty of results. You know, if you get somebody who walks in and particularly when they're relatively fresh to training and you say, sweet, let's like gain 10 kilos, they're going to be thinking shit. Like (laughs) what's going to happen when I do that? Am I just going to be fat? Um, And there's also like questions about short-term competitiveness for powerlifters you know, one of the main reasons a lot of people suppress their body weight is because they feel like they can stomp on noobs in in their current lighter weight classes. So when people come to you with those with those kind of, yeah, sources of ambivalence, how do you negotiate each of them? Uh, well, so I think like particularly on the note of that last one where people are worried about being competitive, I think that's often the case for a lot of people who are sort of, Average, like average-ish height, but quite slim because going up a weight class potentially means they're traveling into a far more competitive sort of zone of people. And again, I often on that, I often ask people like, what's the actual point? Like, why are you undertaking powerlifting? And for a lot of them, they're getting into powerlifting because they like the idea of being big and strong. Um, and I don't really see, unless there's something else which really matters to you, I don't see long-term why you'd want to be like the biggest strongest of the smaller weaker group of people um if you're competitive as opposed to going hey i really want to long-term mix it with the best and i think that long-term argument is really important because so many people get into powerlifting for a short period of time and then never really do it again um and really because a big part of becoming like two parts of becoming good at powerlifting are both the acquisition of that muscle and the technical slash neurological element of being able to exert those high forces. It takes a really long time to actually be really good. Like there are plenty of individuals who become quite good quite quickly, but if you continue to engage in powerlifting for the next 10, 15 years, you are going to be far, far, far better. And I think reframing that as a journey that you engage in and you, it's a pursuit you have potentially for life is a really useful way of dealing with that worry about short-term competitiveness in a weight class, like getting people to zoom out a bit more. I think um, I think a lot of new lifters like to compare themselves to the best of the best, right? Which is human nature. And I think in part of that, they see the best lifters who do cut to make weight classes and they want to do what those lifters are doing. How would you sort of frame talking to someone who had that kind of a, a mindset? Yeah, I think in that case, again, it's getting them to realize that they are different to those best lifters um, in that if they've been training for not a particular long amount of time compared to five, 10 years, like if you're a natural athlete who's been training for 10 years and training to quite a high standard, you've probably gained a very large percentage of the muscle you're going to gain. Don't say that. I'll be small forever. Yeah, look, maybe get on the creatine again, Alex. Um, but no, like, I think it becomes, 
like it becomes a question of developmentally what are your priorities and almost every like novice intermediate powerlifter can just simply get better by packing on some muscle and it's quite accessible if their nutrition and their training are even vaguely appropriate especially when you talk about like teenage blokes and blokes in their early 20s like your like hormone levels and your lifestyle are so good that you can just look at weights and you'll gain some muscle um as opposed to someone who's like quite advanced and who spent so long, the gains they're going to have are probably going to come more out of just improving their capacity to produce force in that framework. And if they're like a really, really good 85 kilo lifter, they won't really gain as much as you would probably like out of taking them into the nineties. And that may make them like comparatively less competitive on like a national or international scale. Uh, And that might, that in that context, it may not be what they're after. So I'm glad you mentioned like teenage boys and, and, you know, like men in their early twenties and, you know, likewise for teenage girls and girls in their early twenties, because these are also people who are probably a little bit focused on like how they look and how they're perceived by society. So as a common objection to weight gain in both instances would be like that they don't think they're going to be as attractive socially um, if they do that. Again, how do you how do you frame discussions around that if somebody says, hey, like I'm really concerned about how my clothes will fit, how people will look at me. I'm not sure if I want to invest this aspect of my life in my training. I think that's a context where it's important to listen and to actually like just be respectful of that in some cases. Um, but another way I think to frame that is I think one of the great things, particularly for women that powerlifting does, is it shows like this great shift away from like talking about what does their body look like to like celebrating what your body can do. And I think the fact that at least in Australia, all of my experiences with powerlifting have shown that like participation is valued to such a high level. Like I think powerlifting and some, or just some kind of strength sport is a really useful way for people to frame, Hey, training isn't just a means of having a certain body composition. It's actually a thing that matters far, far beyond that and improves your self-efficacy and gives you a sense of self-worth and it can do all these other really good things for you. Um, I think like, and, and again, people's worry about that is tends to be fairly like, like you're allowed to be concerned about that. You're allowed to worry about how your body feels. And often I think allowing people to engage in that pursuit, like within the confines that they set for themselves. And then saying to them again, post-comp, post-reflection, hey, like if we try this, this could be really good for you. And the other kicker is, like I mentioned before, I'll often get people to gain weight as slowly as possible for extended periods of time. If If you're 70 kilos and you're gaining like somewhere between half a kilo and a kilo a month, you're not gonna get fat overnight. You're not gonna see drastic changes in your body composition anyway. So, realistically you're putting yourself in a position where you're effectively like you're minimizing worry about that kind of thing if that makes sense yeah for sure um something that i've found useful as well is getting people to get some vicarious experience um you know i've had i've had a number of clients sort of ask me about like gaining weight and what their expectations should be and it's nice when you've got somebody else on hand who is you know similar to them in a lot more respects than I am, where I can say, hey, why don't you talk to X, Y, or Z person? They recently did something really similar. Ask them what their experiences were like 
and things like that. Because, you know, like if I do train a 55 kilo woman who's early in her weight training career, and I say as a 95 kilo man who's been training for 15 years, like gaining weight is dope. <laughs> she, she's going to be like, well, it seems like, seems like that's coming from a different place. Whereas if I say, oh, you know, like Libby over there did something similar last year, why don't you talk to her? And they can have a conversation like that. I think that they can draw a lot of reassurance from that, especially when it does corroborate the things that you say, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's one of the, go on. oh, no, yeah. I think that's one of the really useful things of like that model where a lot of people create like powerlifting squads or teams. Um, like, well, you've got your Facebook group, Alex, I know you've got like the, uh, the team Hayes hashtag floating around and things like that. Um, but yeah, giving people like that vicarious experience and going, okay, like you're not actually like alone in this dilemma, but there are heaps of people who've experienced this and people who are both like a little bit ahead of you and also like much, much further down the line as aspirational figures. I like that you call it a dilemma because when you use the hashtag team Hayes, it is like a cry for help. You know, it's like saying I'm, oh, definitely. It, we're all in this together. You know, like it's not good. It's like being yeah. on the Titanic as it sinks. Like it's not great, but at least you're not alone, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's preference from just nothing. Each other. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> don't, don't have much else, but we got that. Well, let's talk about the nuts and bolts. Um, TC, we're gaining weight. Um, you've spoken about a slow rate of weight gain. So let's take that as granted. What are, what other nutritional priorities do you look for during people who are trying to gain weight? So to me, I think like particularly for powerlifting, that's like twofold. There's nutritional priorities we have from like a, how do we make sure your body composition improves as much as possible? So making sure you've got enough protein, which is being put in, um, I tend, depending on how much the individual like gets in habitually, I tend to recommend somewhere around that two to 2.2 grams of protein per kilo body weight. Um, if you're particularly lean, that'll go to the higher end of that continuum. If you're less lean, it can sit a tiny bit lower, but I think maximizing protein intake year round really is a really accessible low hanging fruit to massively improve the quality of your diet from a body composition and like sports performance perspective, because your recovery will be a bit better. Um, and it also means that sort of no matter what direction your diet's headed in, whether you're gaining weight or whether you're losing weight, you're doing as much as you can to build or maintain muscle. Um, a lot of people, it's funny actually watching the pendulum swing and people begin to fetishize like high carb diets a lot more now. I think there's definitely a place for trying to, maximize your carb intake while you're trying to gain weight but i'd also probably be of a mind that the more calories you put in and the more carbs you're putting in you're getting very much diminished returns from that um so like the there's recommendations floating around of eight to 12 grams of carbs per kilo body weight um but that's that's quite a lot i was gonna say that's a fucking very large amount when you talk about like what that would actually mean for like, like for an 80 kilo male, that would potentially mean as many as 960 grams of carbs a day. Like those recommendations would largely be for endurance athletes though, right? Yeah. It's, there's that element too, but there's also like a, I think like carbohydrate intake becomes increasingly important with people who are dealing with like comparatively higher intensities as well. Like if you were an endurance athlete, I think you can probably get away with less. 
uh, like even comparatively less is like a macronutrient split. But I would, so like, I don't think the eight to 12 grams is like actually necessary or a thing we should really have to chase. Particularly if you're doing this, Hey, we're doing this for like 10 months. We're going to spend this time slowly gaining weight. I'll often frame to people instead, let's give you a minimum vegetable and fruit intake and a protein target. Yeah. Alex is giving me a thumbs down for the fruit and veg. Uh, well, if you're in surplus, you can probably put some like cheese on it or something, Alex. Perfect. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I think because a lot of powerlifters going out weight classes will tend to have really high calorie intakes as well, particularly if you are heavy and you're getting heavier, you have some metabolic adaptation, making sure diet quality doesn't fall down the wayside matters quite a bit. Um, like I know when I was trying to gain weight, there were stages where I was eating like whole packs of Tim Tams and like smothering olive oil and stuff. And Sure, you like, you tick the box like nutritionally, but you're probably just not going to feel as good. And you're going to be like, you're going to be a little bit sick in the stomach. And those kind of qualitative things will also impact your training and sleep and recovery. I, I do want to kind of jump in um, before we get on to the, the health stuff, which, which I find very amusing. Some of TC's eating during his weight gaining was funny. But I think it's also important to respect the diversity of people who are engaging in powerlifting from a lifestyle perspective as well because you know while tc was gaining weight he was a personal trainer playing rugby and training for powerlifting four or five times a week and he's a young man and all these things that you would expect would contribute to a pretty big energy envelope and it appears that he's got a pretty adaptive metabolism as well because he was just shoveling food down his mouth but there are also people who are you know maybe in their mid-20s or maybe 30 35 who are office workers where they train three to five times a week and for a total of five or six hours. And other than walking around the city to get a coffee or something at lunchtime, that's the, there's not much activity going on. And so whilst their energy needs are still going to increase possibly quite markedly from, from their maintenance during a weight gain phase, I don't think that the expectation should be set that everybody is going to end up on this like wild level of food intake. For many people, it will be, it will be a matter of adding calories to a non-negligible degree, but in doing so, if you don't have that foundation of solid, like solid dietary health and like good dietary choices, you're probably actually going to end end up really blowing the budget and turning your long-term bulk into a short-term dreamer bulk. Yeah. And like I had a consult with a bloke probably like a month, two months ago, who spoke about a very similar thing in that he identified as someone who traditionally had a hard time gaining weight and his decision was to set a really, really high calorie target where he gained weight at a really, really rapid pace. Um, and like, that's just not the answer, if that makes sense. Um, I do, I do really like what you spoke about there as in having your like sort of set eating behaviors will, it's very much a dietitian move. Um, but no, like, I think if you, if you understand for me, breakfast is normally this lunch is normally this dinner is normally some kind of derivative of this. And I have two snacks a day. And if that's enough to keep me in maintenance, all I really want is like just to add a tiny bit more. That could be as simple as you adding, like could be as simple as you adding an extra potato at dinner and an extra half cup of rice or something at lunch or 
there are so many little ways if you have like set food behaviors and you're just like still ticking your fundamentals off you can just tweak that and then see what happens if you see your weight trending up keep it there if your weight starts to plateau again you can again turn that dial add a little bit more and just push that up over time so from an from an actual numbers perspective how much of a surplus are we talking what kind of percentage of maintenance over would you recommend I tend to, I tend not to do that decision purely on a percentage basis because I think the ramifications of changes then matter comparatively more in people who are heavier and on higher levels of calories. Like a 10% change in calories when you're on 1600, is just so different to a 10% change when you're eating at 5,000 calories. Um, so I tend to give people like I tend to give people increases of no less than 150 to 200 calories at a time simply because I often consider there to be like, there's so much measurement error in the food we're eating and the way that like those calories are assigned. And unless they're strictly weighing everything, there's probably also some user error on that framework. So giving people enough to guarantee they're probably eating more food over time is a good move. And again, like you might add that 150, 200 calories in someone who's fairly small and you might find they actually like, they don't really gain any weight at all. And then you simply just have the possibility of increasing that again. Um, and because this is like a pursuit, this weight gain is something you're probably going to do for months on end, um, as you should to try and improve your body comp and vertebral muscle, you'll probably find you just have to make that decision repeatedly along that process. And that like that, I recently had a client who had, he spent 18 months in a surplus. He was a very interesting case actually. Um, but he spent 18 months in a surplus and ended up dieting uh, and not dieting, ended up gaining weight on about 800 calories more than he'd started doing so. And I think like the industry loves to sell metabolic adaptation as this like magical fix it thing that like bodybuilding coaches do. But the reality is if you're fueled at a surplus for a long enough period of time and you gain some weight, you're going to find the amount of calories you do need goes up anyway. Um, so just having like that iterative approach of just, Hey, what's happening, what's happening with this dose and then escalating appropriately. 18 months, man. That's, that's nothing. Will did it for 18 years. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. I actually, um, I had this discussion, not that I'm saying that everyone should get to 118 kilos, but I remember having this discussion with somebody um, online. It was in Lyle McDonald's Facebook group. And there was this guy and it was the classic dude who says he's like six foot tall and 70 kilos. And he was like, he was like, you know, I'm 70 kilos. I'm 12% body fat. My goal is to be 80 kilos and 10% body fat. So I'm going to gain five kilos. And then I'm going to cut three kilos and I'm going to gain five kilos, et cetera. And he was like, and if I project out my weight rate of weight gain, that's the most efficient way to be there. And I'll be there in two years or something like that. If I just do those cycles, what do you guys think? And I remember sort of saying to him, like, it might work, but I don't know anybody who's actually like substantially increased their muscle mass or achieved like truly substantial levels of strength who hasn't gone through at least one long-term phase of weight gain where they've put on like, you know, in percentage terms, a reasonable amount of their body weight, like 10 plus. 
everyone needs to do one. Like yeah. maybe not everyone needs to do one, but you know, there is, there is definitely something to be said for having those longer term periods where you do just push a little bit longer and for gaining some momentum. And again, I'm not actually saying everybody go get fat, get to 120 yeah. kilos, but if you're like too gently, gently, softly, softly, don't let yourself gain too much ever. Chances are you probably just won't gain much ever. Yeah, I think that's a really common one with particularly a lot of skinny blokes who really value their abs. Um, well, that was me in high school. Yeah, uh, so I've heard. Um, it's easy if you never have them in the first place. Yeah, well, exactly. That's my approach. Um, but no, like I think there's definitely cases where like that kind of, where there's probably cases where that kind of really gradual, like step up, step down approach is useful. Yeah, if you're nearly maxing out your your genetic potential yeah. probably a great really, idea if you're massively underweight probably not a great idea yeah and especially like if you are i think the trouble a lot of classically skinny people have is that they tend to like every person i've ever met who's skinny and claims to eat a lot of food is really good at acutely eating a lot of food but sucks at chronic overeating hmm. um and i think like when you in that context when you say to this person, Hey, it's not about like eating the five pizzas on Friday night. It's about like eating pizza and then eating more than a hundred calories the next day. Cause you're so full from it. Um, and like, again, if they're like young and comparatively under muscled, there's no reason why they shouldn't spend as much time as possible in at least like a productive context. Um, like you don't want them particularly if they're gaining or if they're trying to lose weight really slowly, you don't want them spending like a one-to-one ratio of gaining and cutting you and them spending like four, five, six times the amount of time they do losing weight, gaining weight and trying to be a bit more productive. Yeah. See, I don't think that approach will is necessarily too bad, but I think it comes back to what you just said, Tom, with yeah. the time frames. So if you're spending six months in a surplus, put on a good amount of tissue and then you sort of trim the fat reset over four to six weeks quite aggressively and then straight back up for another four to six months or whatever. I think that can be a good approach. Yeah, Like you said, if if it's a one for one bulking, then cutting and it's like, you know, on switch off switch, you kind of don't really get the positive benefits of either. You kind of end up just spinning your wheels and ending ending up the same 80 kilo at the same body fat percentage. Well, I agree with that. Um, Before you jump into it, I agree with that. What I don't necessarily think a lot of people grasp is, again, let's say you're 70 kilos and you want to be 80 kilos and leaner than you were at 70. Some people seem to think that the heaviest they'll have to get for that to be possible is like 80, 81. Mm. Whereas in reality, you very often have to overshoot your target weight, you know, and give yourself plenty of time to gain plenty of muscle rather than thinking that you can advance very linearly towards those goals. And when your starting point is like, respectfully pretty low doing so can very much curtail your progress yeah no i definitely agree with that the um at a point it's completely gone i apologize that's okay we'll feed you another question that's why we're the hosts and you're the guest um you you mentioned health you mentioned like maybe targeting some fruit and vegetable intake not having out of control rates of weight gain um, are there a couple of other things, either nutritionally or behaviorally, that you think that um, that athletes would benefit from during weight gain phases? Yeah, I think not losing the ability 
to be a person is probably a good one there in that I see like I see I've seen quite a few people do that big weight gain like that dream involved you spoke about earlier Will where they've had this like escalation in their body weight everything's going really well and their cardiovascular health takes like very much a big hit as well um, and the side effect of that is often people just feel markedly worse. Um, there is at least a degree that having some kind of aerobic fitness will help you recover both between sets and between sessions. Um, so I think still doing some movement and understanding that there comes a point where you pursuing powerlifting is no longer like a health thing, but it's rather like a pursuit that you deem philosophically yeah, philosophically meaningful enough that you're like partaking in it. Um, particularly the case I've got, I'm working with a couple of people at the moment who are anabolic users. Don't tell Rob Wilkes. Um, but when, especially when you start engaging with things like that, you need to start asking questions of, okay, Hey, how am I going to make sure I'm as healthy as possible? Despite the fact I'm engaging with this. And the same would go like if, like if Will decided to go up to the 120s because that might help him bench 145. Um, if you were to do that, the question is no longer, should I go up or not? The question becomes, how do I do this in a framework which provides the least cost possible? And like I said, a large part of that's just for the fact of like eating your veggies um, and doing some kind of low intensity cardiovascular work like that maybe just going for a walk once a day like i know alex do you like going for your walk um or that could be like sitting on a bike two or three times a week and just letting your legs roll over there's plenty of ways to solve that problem um but and again keeping your eye on like depending on how much weight you are gaining like if you're a if you're going if you're the 70 kilo bloke we spoke about before his health is not going to get worse going from 70 to 80. But that's very much the case of the further down that path you go and the further you work and the more stuff you put in, the more you're going to have to start looking after your health. Um, I think keeping it on your blood pressure is a really underrated metric. Like if you're in your early 20s and you've got like hypertension, probably have a think about things because that's not going to be an issue now. It won't be an issue for 20 or 30 years. But if it is if it is there now, it's not getting better unless you do something about it. Um, and like, yeah, it's kind of important and hard that works. What? Okay, let's. I want to wrap this discussion up a little bit by asking, in your experience gaining weight yourself, and when you coach others, what are what are the big takeaways that? that you think athletes get from going through this process of gaining weight and going up a weight class? Um, I think it's really, I think it's a really gratifying experience in that a lot of people obviously see themselves get better at a thing they enjoy doing and that really matters to them. Um, and especially if you're someone who's already working hard, I think looking, instead of looking at your training and asking yourself, how can I train harder and more? looking at the rest of your life is a really useful behavior. I think getting people to be more mindful of their diet, and especially in the context of going up a weight class, you could say, Hey, like we want to really deliberately do this for a lot of people. This could help their like other sort of health seeking behaviors. So you might be able to convince them, 
don't have 20 beers this weekend at the pub. Um, but using that like performance goal and that off season idea of, Hey, we're still getting better over this time using that as a way to get people to dial down in other domains, if that makes sense. Um, what was the other part of that question? Sorry. It was basically just what lessons do people take away? Yeah, I think that, and I think like there's something to be said nutritionally about understanding there's like a spectrum of nutrition from weight gain to weight loss. And that looking after your diet and managing your nutrition isn't just about being as skinny as possible, but you can also manipulate it in the other direction and understanding that, Hey, like in this context, I can increase my calorie density. I can up the fats. I can put on some sauces or some cheese and stuff and gaining insight into going that direction. Also funnily enough, helps you understand what you need to go back in the other direction. Um, Yeah. I think that's actually a very good point. We speak, you know, we speak about flexible dieting for weight loss and saying like, you know, all foods have their place and then clap, clap, clap. Like the Instagram emoji where you say all clap foods, clap. Yeah. Have their, yeah. Um, but when, when we are losing weight, the majority of foods places should probably be occupied by, you know, lean meats, whole grains, fruit, veggies, etc. But being able to recognize that there is a place to rationally and guilt-free have higher calorie density things and, and also appreciate the context where, yeah, they are probably less appropriate, you know, um, in serving your goals by saying, well, this is for now and not for them is a useful, useful skill, particularly when you do start to develop, like you said, that idea of a nutritional spectrum rather than just on off switches of either I'm gaining weight like a monster or losing weight and being a bit anorexic about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. All right. We're going to take a very quick break and then we're going to come back and hit TC with a patented, overrated, underrated, properly rated question. The segment that Alex definitely invented. (laughs) Welcome back to Weekly Weights. It's episode 122 or something. We're with Tom Clark of Flex Success. We're playing underrated, overrated. We're playing the game where we rate things. And apparently there is a proper order. that It's overrated, underrated, properly rated. Is that correct? That's correct. All right. Well, we're, we're doing that game. Tom Clark, overrated, underrated, properly rated. As a new Queensland resident, Powderfinger. Oh, I'm going to say slightly neutral to slightly underrated, I reckon. Okay. Give the... Um, we do have an international listenership. I say an international an listenership. Right. There's at least one. And it's like your listener. cousin in New Zealand or something. Will. What's that? Is it like a cousin in New Zealand or something? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, tell people a little bit or as much as you know about Powderfinger and then justify your answer. Oh, iconic bands. Um, been around a, like quite a while. They actually released a song. I, they released an album this year, I think, actually. That may be true. Um the actually funny story it took me an exceptionally long time to realize that bernard fanning is the lead singer of powderfinger um, now you know like in that i was like 22 and just said offhand to one of my mates one week oh gee he really sounds like the lead singer of powderfinger <laughs> <laughs> but just like like really like good quality music without actually being like exceptionally good i think so I've always wanted to not be wrong about this. So um, so one of Powderfinger's greatest albums is Vulture Street. 
And if I'm correct, there is a Vulture Street end at the Gabba, right? Dude, Dude I'm, literally, I'm literally staying on Vulture Street right now. Oh, no way. Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. So this is why I say I don't want to be wrong about that. I always thought that that was like the most Queenslander album title ever. And a quick Wikipedia search didn't confirm for me whether they named it Vulture Street after that end of the Gabba. But I'm pretty sure there's a Vulture Street end of the Gabba. And if so, the Gabba being the Brisbane Cricket Ground, by the way, if so, that's just the most Australian album title of all time. But I think Powderfinger are pretty great. Bernard Fanning's pretty great. I would say your answer's probably about right. Um, Powderfinger or Silverchair, though? Oh, I'd still be Powderfinger, I think. Absolutely. I'm glad you said that. So, yeah, Silverchair and Newcastle's answer to Powderfinger. They're just... (laughs) They're, they're pretty Newcastle. They're also like the poor man's like, well, not quite the poor man's Coldplay, but. Oh, wow. That's, that's quite a vibe. You that's were not vibe. around for Frog Stomp. So when nah, Silverchair dude. was 16, they released the album Frog Stomp, which has a couple of absolutely classic songs in it. And it sounds like 16-year-old boys made it up and recorded it because they did. Uh, but there are some great songs in that album. And it turns out at the time, that they they toured with Guns N' Roses when Guns N' Roses came to Australia um, as teenagers and their dads were their roadies. I might have told this story on the podcast before. So they're touring Australia with Guns N' Roses, dads are their roadies, and the Guns N' Roses used to play pranks on them all the time by, like, you know, sending strippers and hookers and shit to their dressing rooms. As And, like, these 16-year-old kids are like, uh, and then probably getting quite around it after not too long. And apparently the dads thought it was the funniest thing in the world. You know, because they're just there watching their sons carrying their stuff around for them, thinking this is dope and hanging out with rock stars. So there you go. Silverchair did mature into a bit of a Coldplay-esque band, Mm. but they certainly didn't start as one. They started as very 16-year-old schoolboys. They also haven't done anything in a while either. Yeah, I'm not really sure when Silverchair last released music, but they're all right. They're just not as good as Goundfinger. Yeah, great. Okay, your question. My one. Yeah, man. Overrated, underrated, properly rated. The like links box sets that that one auntie gets you for Christmas every year. Oh, we're talking deodorant? Yeah. yeah. The deodorant, like body wash, deodorant. Buy ones. I've never opened one. I don't. Can I answer on behalf of Alex? You never receive one? No, I receive them all the time. We've got like this <laughs> cupboard just full of them. Like I get one or two a year. They just go in the cupboard and sit there. Wait, you don't use them? <laughs> no. Well, then how can you have a rating system if you don't use it? How can you have a missus if you don't use links? That's what I don't understand. That's why you don't have a missus. You'll see a step on the podcast and ask. Yeah, we will have to get Steph on the podcast. Um, Okay. I want to answer on behalf of Alex. Overrated. And I can say that for sure because Alex has not used deodorant or, or at the very least not well in a long time. So I'm going to say he thinks it's overrated and he certainly isn't putting the body wash to any use. Alex. I'm offended. And <laughs> do you use links? You're a liar. No, I use Rexona, but I used to use links when I was 15, 16. And I'm going to say underrated. When you're a 15, 16 year old kid and you have a shower gel deodorant combo, that's all you need. Yeah. I mean, look, it's good. It's a good little box set. It's okay. good until puberty, though. Yeah. I was going to say more seriously, yeah. links is just so overrated. Like they've done so well marketing it towards like 15 16 year old boys because they think they smell sick and chicks will dig it but in as far as i've taken a survey of women's deodorant preferences 
they seem to like Rex owner and Rex owner sport and not like links. And I feel like links is designed to smell good to men and not smell good to girls, but they market it as if you put this on, you'll be dripping in women. And unless you get the actual ones that are antiperspirant. Yeah. You just smell terrible. Yeah. And sweat mixed with deodorant is a worse smell than sweat on its own. But isn't that part of the, I could well be wrong here, but isn't part of the deodorant thing meant to be the two smells like interact as well? No, I reckon you're, you've been sucked in by pheromone marketing hype. You're that guy who goes to the pub, goes in to the, the pub, just feeding $1 coins in the machine. Yeah. Like wipe on sex appeal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's, no, links absolutely sucks, mate. Um, it's, it's no good at all. I actually, I, in one of my more bizarre dating scenarios, um, here we go. I, I went, I went on a date with a girl who was born in Siberia, had family in China. And so she had like a very Eurasian appearance and she had been cast in a Chinese Lynx commercial, which she showed me. And I have trawled the internet for hours trying to find this because she was a bit of a fruit loop. So I really wanted to show people how loopy she was. But basically the premise of this commercial was this chick was an assassin and she did look like the classic, like James Bond, evil, but slightly sexy woman assassin. So she's in like skin tight leather suit carrying like two pistols. And she's chasing this guy who is a bit of a like spy looking character around this like shipping container yard. And he's dodging and weaving and she shoots him like straight up just shoots this dude. And she's walking over to him and he's gasping like his final few breaths and she's about to finish the job and he sprays himself with links <laughs> and she goes all weak at the knee and decides not to kill him and like kisses him and starts nursing him back to health. And then it's got like the Chinese subtitles and stuff coming out going like, you know, links, like, you know, very sexy deodorant. <laughs> I was like, this is the weirdest thing ever. Anyway, she showed me that it was a weird time, but that is the Lynx marketing shtick is it's all about sex appeal, but I can guarantee that it doesn't make you sexy. Marketing's about making people buy things. Yeah, well, so I mean- it fucking works. Yeah, it does work. Lynx is a successful company. I mean, better Lynx than Brute. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Brute's like Aldi Lynx. <laughs> Brute was big at one stage though. That might be the worst insult ever leveled against the breath. I think there actually, I think there actually is an Audi Lynx though. I'm, li- I'm literally weak. I can't breathe. <laughs> TC, TC, can you tell us where people can find you for coaching? I'm literally about to cry. Um, people can, um, people can find me on Instagram at tom.clark.fitness or at flexitest for coaching. Um, that's really the main way to find me. I'm sorry. I'll just I'll live for a bit while we all like hyperventilates and Don't worry away. about finding us. I'm not going to be around. I can't breathe. <laughs> <laughs> just fucking uh, Alex. We'll, we'll, we'll catch you next week, guys. <laughs> yeah.